How is it important to American national security that we provide for a robust defense of Ukraine's sovereignty? The Russians are violating all of the rules, treaties, understandings that they committed to that actually kept the peace in Europe for nearly 70 years. Until they invaded Ukraine in 2014, they had abided by sovereignty of, of, sovereignty of nations, of, of inviolability of borders. That rule of law, that order that kept the peace in Europe and allowed for prosperity as well as peace in Europe was violated by the Russians. And if we don't push back on that, on those violations, then that will continue. And that, Mr. Chairman, um, affects us. It's, it, it affects the world that we live in, that our children will grow up in, and our grandchildren. This affects the kind of world that we want to, to see abroad. So that affects our national interest very directly. Ukraine is on the front line of that, of that conflict. Welcome to episode 16 of Global Impact, the podcast which connects the geopolitical dots so you don't have to. Well, it's been exactly a year since the lava started to heat up in a political volcano that would eventually lead to impeachment charges against Donald J. Trump. In that early summer period of 2019, senior officials in the U.S. State Department, White House, and intelligence agencies began to take notice of troubling moves to block almost $400 million of security assistance to an ally at war with Russia, Ukraine. Now, to be clear, this was aid which had already been pre-approved by Congress and cleared by various agencies. And at that time in Ukraine, it was a euphoric period with TV comedian turned politician Volodymyr Zelensky elected to the office of the presidency in an historic landslide vote to boost his legitimacy at home and increase his leverage in dealings with his Russian counterpoint, Vladimir Putin, to return about 7% of occupied Ukrainian territory, Mr. Zelensky was eager to obtain an invitation to the Oval Office. In the now infamous phone call of July 25th, 2019, President Trump was overheard demanding from Zelensky what amounted to a quid pro quo, dirt on the activities of Hunter Biden in Ukraine, in return for security assistance and that coveted White House meeting. As allegations of a quid pro quo deal and a subsequent cover-up became public, the sought-after Oval Office meeting never materialized. Instead, a long-drawn-out impeachment hearing that would drag Ukraine front and center into one of the biggest scandals of the modern presidency. Soon, Zelensky would become a household name in the United States. Other names that became extremely well-known during those days of testimony were Trump supporter Gordon Sumland, George Kent, Jennifer Williams, Alexander Vindman, Kurt Volker, and Marie Yovanovitch. Among them was Ambassador William Taylor, a respected career diplomat who was serving at that time as the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine. In the intro to this episode, that was his voice, replying to a question from Chairman Adam Schiff, on why U.S. military aid to Ukraine is a matter of U.S. national security. Well, fast forward a year later, and we managed to catch up with a very relaxed Ambassador Taylor at his home in Washington, D.C. 
He now works at the U.S. Institute of International Peace, but still plays a very active role in supporting Ukraine's development and keeping an eye on many, many burning conflicts around the world and how to resolve them. This is the first extended interview with Ambassador Taylor since he left the State Department. William Taylor, uh, Vice President, Strategic Stability and Security at the United States Institute of Peace and the uh, former uh, Chargé d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. Ambassador, a very warm welcome to Global Impact. Michael, thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Ambassador, let's hop into uh, one of our joint favorite topics by a long shot, I'm sure, is Ukraine. And uh, I was listening <laughs> to an interview, I think it was with Jake Tapper, and uh, you were talking about whether you should have gone to Ukraine and your wife wasn't too excited about it, but you went and everything turned out okay. But I always say, um, you know, Ukraine to me is like the wife or the dear one that will never divorce you. It keeps on beckoning you back no matter what. <laughs> Right. There is that. There is that. And uh, because, yeah, exactly, because Ukraine is so compelling um, uh, and, and, and frankly, so important for Canadian national interests, for United States national interests, for European interests. Uh, no, it's, I, I think uh, we do have an obligation to ourselves to, to help out. And I'm sure many, many Ukrainians are very thankful for your uh, service over the years. Um, Ambassador, I've assumed you've watched at least a clip of uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky's former comedy, Servant of the People. And I'm wondering, given the history of Ukrainian politics, do you think that Zelensky is perhaps smarter than he lets on? I know I've written about this and I've said it on air because everyone's initial reaction is, how can you take a professional actor, comedian seriously as a head of state? Uh, but perhaps he knows that and can use the impression to his advantage in some deft way. Do you have any thoughts about that? So, yes. Um, I had the fortune, um, uh, the good luck, uh, to have many interactions with President Zelensky um, only after he had been sworn in as president, inaugurated mm -hmm. as president. Um, I didn't know him before, uh, before that. I had been to uh, Ukraine during the uh, presidential elections. I was an international election observer, mm -hmm. both first round and second round. So I watched him there, watched him in the debate um, in the stadium. Um, and then, as I say, had uh, had an opportunity to meet with him on, frankly, many occasions during the time I was there last year. Um, and I will tell you that I am impressed with... Uh, with President Zelensky. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did watch uh, uh, the first season of, uh, of Servant of the People. Um, and my observation, Michael, I'd be interested in yours, is mm -hmm. that uh, whoever put that show together um, had a good sense of what the Ukrainian people were wanted um, mm -hmm. and were striving for and, and wanted to become. I mean, he appealed to that, and I think that suggests to me that he understood the Ukrainian people very well, um, and and uh, and that's the mark of a good president. You need you need at least that to be a good president. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget Ronald Reagan. What did he do before he became governor of California? Well, there you go. There <laughs> we go. We've had, had actors um, exactly. in, in our in our past. Uh, 
uh, our current president is the TV uh, show host as well. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, uh, I, I was there too uh, during the election and I asked the Observer uh, election mission heads in their press conferences, do you think that it is possible that the Ukrainian electorate were kind of subconsciously voting for the Zelensky in the TV show rather than Zelensky on the podium and for, you know, uh, who just declared victory that perhaps people, because most Ukrainians have seen that show and I thought that maybe there was something playing in their heads that they thought this is the guy we're electing into office. So. I totally agree. I totally agree. Like I say, I think uh, his, the, the, the show um, when, when, uh, President uh, Horodko was fighting the, right. the oligarchs um, and was uh, fighting corruption in his own cabinet. Um, yeah. um, the Ukrainian people got that. They, uh, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And uh, when Vladimir Zelensky then campaigned on that, they, they, I think they got it. I think they put the two together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, Ambassador, I wrote um, a few months ago in CNN that, and, you know, you and I, we both um, come to an agreement that enough has been written and said about uh, the hearings and all that, that we're going to move forward. So just to make that clear. But at the time I wrote that, um, you know, Zelensky um, being in the spotlight as he was, Ukraine being in the spotlight as, as the country was, had an amazing opportunity to reach out to the U.S. Congress, to the U.S. public. And at the time, I floated the idea of President Zelensky reaching out to Speaker Pelosi and asking to address the U.S. Congress in an attempt to tell everyone what Ukraine is all about, the Ukraine narrative, tell them about the uh, conflict in the East. Um, similar to what Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu did in 2015, Thus far, he hasn't done so. I think the government has a very small footprint in Washington, D.C., but do you think this is an idea that um, could have had some legs if it would have been done at the right time? Oh, I do. Um, and I think it would not have taken, it would not have taken the Ukrainian side to ask for that. I think the American side, I think um, mm -hmm. the American Congress uh, speaker um, would have extended the invitation had he come. Um, now, <clears throat> Uh, as we know, uh, President Trump uh, uh, promised President Zelensky uh, uh, to meet with him in the Oval Office in Washington. Uh, he sent him a letter. President Trump sent mm -hmm. President Zelensky a letter with that invitation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, when that happens, when President Zelensky comes to Washington, um, uh, then I would be... I, I would I, 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 I'd be surprised if, uh, if Speaker Pelosi doesn't invite him to come mm -hmm. speak to the to the Congress in some form. Mm -hmm. Okay, and let's not forget that uh, the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov has been <laughs> photographed in the Oval Office next to Trump. I think at least once already as well. So all the more reason for President Zelensky to come to Washington to meet the president, but also to meet the Congress and also to meet the American people. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned, Michael, that there are, uh, there are two stories that are to be told about Ukraine in, in Washington. I'm sure mm -hmm. it's true in other capitals um, around the world. But in Washington in particular, there is the Ukraine story that focuses on impeachment and mm -hmm. on corruption 
and on Mr. Giuliani and Mr. Dercotch and those, you know, that, that story. Uh, and that's a partisan story. Um, that's a very partisan story that treats Ukraine not as the main topic, but as the object. There's another story, um, and I put this in my, in my testimony. There's another more positive story about Ukraine in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, which, and, and which is a bipartisan story. That is, the support for Ukraine in Washington is bipartisan, has been bipartisan. Um, Republicans, Democrats, over the years of administrations, um, and, and <clears throat> in that story, Ukraine's a subject, and Ukraine is acting, and Ukraine is moving toward Europe, and Ukraine is fighting corruption. And importantly, Ukraine is fighting the Russians. The, the, the mm -hmm. American people know more now about the Ukraine fight against the Russian attack, the Russian war on Ukraine and on the West than they did six months ago. Um, and so that story, mm -hmm. even though it may have been associated with the first negative story, the partisan story, the bipartisan story where Ukraine is the subject that is fighting the Russians, that has gotten a lot more play um, in Washington and in the United States because of the first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed, agreed. And of course, uh, no small thanks to you for getting that story out, not only in your testimony, but in follow-up interviews. Um, hard to believe it's been a year, not only since the inauguration, but also the Ukrainian Reform Conference that was, well, on the other side of the country from me in Toronto. Uh, my goodness, Ambassador Winzelensky came here. There was such euphoria, including from the Ukrainian diaspora. Now we're a year later, and uh, a lot of complaints about a lot of promises not being fulfilled. Has Zelensky done what he has? Has Zelensky accomplished what he ran on? No, he hasn't, because he ran <clears throat> on two big things. Uh, one was the war, and the other was fighting corruption. Mm -hmm. um, he's made some progress on both, I, I, I will say. Um, he has taken, I think, a more proactive stance, I mean, a more aggressive stance, a more uh, uh, active uh, stance vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the Russians and has had some successes. He's got some prisoners exchanged. He's got some sailors released. Mm -hmm. um, he's gotten some uh, crossing points open. Uh, he's gotten some places where the respective sides, both sides, have pulled back um, uh, from the from the line of contact. Um, he's he's sat down with President Putin face to face uh, um, and has had and 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 stuck up for himself, stuck up for Ukraine yep. in that in that confrontation with President Putin. So so he's done some things, but he has not ended the war. Um, <clears throat> he needs help ending the war. Uh, in the first instance, he needs President Putin to decide it's not worth it for him to stay in Donbass. We'll talk about Crimea later, I hope. Yes. Um, but in Donbass, um, um, President Putin needs to look for a way to get out of that mistake that he's made. Um, and President Zelensky needs to push him um, uh, to, to acknowledge that mistake or, or at least to act on that mistake to pull his, his Russian troops out of there. So that's the first thing, that he's not yet accomplished that he said he would. And the second one is fighting corruption. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he's made some progress there, you know, while I was there. Um, uh, he opened the high anti-corruption court. And the high anti-corruption court, of course, had been established in the previous administration under President Poroshenko, but it hadn't begun to operate. 
and it didn't mm -hmm. have a place to meet. It didn't have a courtroom. Um, and within a couple of weeks of, uh, of his government, of Zelensky's government, uh, sitting down in the end of August, um, uh, the prosecutor general, uh, Ruslan Rubashapka, found a place for the high anti-corruption court to meet and put it in, but uh, got it going. Um, similarly, they, he took some other steps. I mean, he finally eliminated uh, parliamentary immunity, which all yep. presidents since the beginning of, uh, of Ukrainian independence have said they wanted to do. They said it was a mistake, but they just couldn't get it done. Um, um, and that's a big step. And, and so Zelensky finally got that done, changed the Constitution. So he's made some steps, he made some progress. Um, um, in order to get an IMF agreement, he also did some things uh, that, uh, that fought corruption, in particular, uh, the attempt by corrupt oligarchs to try to regain control over banks. And the IMF said, mm -hmm. if you do that, you're not going to get a loan from us. And he passed legislation, Zelensky passed legislation to be sure um, that, uh, that those oligarchs didn't get uh, control over the banks, that they had bankrupted uh, um, earlier. Uh, so so he's, he's taken some steps. Um, he's, he hasn't accomplished it yet. He, he has made a lot of us nervous, worried. Uh, mm -hmm. Concerned um, when he got rid of, when when he changed governments um, and got rid of some very reform-minded ministers. Yep. Uh, that's up to him. Uh, you know, that's not up to um, uh, Americans or Canadians or anybody any other foreigners um, to decide uh, what the cabinet looks like. But um, there were a lot of uh, foreigners, and more importantly, a lot of Ukrainians who had confidence. Um, in Ruslan Rubashapka, for example, as the prosecutor general, um, mm -hmm. um, and the minister of finance, who was great. She was uh, she was really responsible for moving a lot of that that forward. So so there were there were concerns and are concerns um, about the commitment to reform when when we see uh, a new prosecutor general who does not appear to be as committed to reform as the original prosecutor general was. Mm -hmm. And uh, we should remind people that uh, not only did Zelensky come into office with a historic win, but also uh, parliamentary historic parliamentary majority, which now seems to be fracturing a little bit. And um, he, one of the other promises was to only one, sorry, only run one term, and he seems to be walking back that promise now as well. Yeah, and he's got he's got some time to figure that one out. Uh, yeah. But on the parliamentary majority, you're exactly right. Um, you know, he had to put together a party from scratch yep. very quickly. Um, and uh, uh, there were some people, as we know now, um, in that party who are not reformers, um, who are clearly not reformers, um, and who are problems for reform, oppose reform, mm -hmm. um, and support uh, some corrupt oligarchs. Um, uh, so so uh, from the beginning, he knew, we knew, many people knew that this uh, overwhelming parliament, it was 60% parliamentary majority, um, was unlikely to persist. And then going back something, Michael, I think you have said um, is important, and that is he's going to need support from other reform-minded RADA deputies mm -hmm. uh, in order to push forward the reform agenda. So uh, ensuring that he can reach out to other parties um, in the RADA, um, and they're not uniform either. There are some reform-minded people in all these parties, 
but re reaching out to them to kind of a reform coalition um, in the Rada uh, to take the place of the Servant of the People Coalition mm -hmm. um, is probably going to be an important piece. Okay, and kind of maybe just one or two quick ones on Zelensky. If you were to be asked by Zelensky, what are the top three, five things I should do immediately, what would they be? I think he should continue to focus on the top two things that he ran on. That is the war um, uh, uh, in the East uh, 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 against the Russians um, and on corruption, in particular corrupt oligarchs. Um, uh, on, on the war, I think he should invite other nations um, into the negotiations um, and challenge the Russians to oppose it. Um, if he were to invite the Canadians or the Brits or the Americans um, mm -hmm. to come in um, and, and participate, uh, make contributions to the, to the solution to Donbass, to getting the Russians out of Donbass and turning the border back over to the Ukrainians. Um, so that's, that's the, the first thing. On the, on the anti-corruption thing, I would say uh, that he needs to move back to, get back to the reform, in particular, the specific reforms of the prosecutor general, Ruslan Robushavka, um, who had been, who was partway through a full-scale uh, cleaning house of the, of the office of the prosecutor general. Um, giving tests to the prosecutors to see if they're good prosecutors and if they are co corrupt or not, or if they know the law or not. Um, that was, that that gave great hope um, to people, including mm -hmm. in particular Ukrainians, who were looking to see a clean, honest, transparent, non-corrupt rule of law um, in the prosecutor general's mm -hmm. office. And mm -hmm. uh, going back to that, I think would be the next thing I would recommend. Yeah, yeah. A great answer, Ambassador. And you know, you've just become part of an esteemed alumni of guests on <laughs> Global Impact because one of the uh, earlier guests was Jim Rogers, um, American uh, financial investor and is very well known. And I put it to him, you know, would you invest in Ukraine? And he basically said, are you kidding? And the main thing he came up with was corruption. So he was looking at, I mean, he can't invest there, but he said, you know, there are interesting opportunities in North Korea, Iran, and he's just bought... Um, assets in China and Russia. So there you go. Uh, but anyway, um, so with so much on his plate, you've enumerated some of them, the reform agenda. Uh, there's also fighting COVID-19 to the ground, let's not forget, resuscitating the economy after weeks of lockdown, uh, uh, and, uh, achieving an enduring ceasefire in the East. Does it surprise you that his administration is pursuing criminal charges against former President Petro? Poroshenko, because a lot of people, including myself, say this looks nothing more than just settling political scores. It does surprise me. Um, it does surprise me. Um, and, uh, and Ukrainians know well uh, this history, um, they, they, it's recent history. I mean, the, the most reviled president of uh, Ukraine uh, in the, in the post-independence time, uh, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, um, uh, put his his uh, predecessor, his rival, and the, and the previous prime minister in jail, Yulia uh, Tymoshenko, put her in jail, and uh, and didn't end up very well for him. Um, uh, others, you know, we look around the world and we see the uh, where where governments come into power and then go after their predecessor 
years. Um, mm -hmm. It's just a mistake. Um, if, you know, if there's there were if there was corruption, okay, let's you know, you know pursue that. But it's, it seems to me, uh, as an outsider, but someone who, who observes and cares about Ukraine, seems to me that the kinds of things that uh, the President Poroshenko is being accused of are doing his duty, doing his job as, as he saw it, whether it was pursuing the war, um, sending ships uh, from one Ukrainian port to another. Uh, to, to go after him for these things seems to me to be a mistake. Um, and probably, as I said earlier, a political mm -hmm. mistake, because he's going to need uh, reform-minded deputies um, across the spectrum, and this is no way to get that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, just to wrap up on Ukraine, Ambassador, briefly, why, why is it important to U.S. national security that a robust defense of Ukraine's sovereignty is provided? I think this is really important for Americans to hear again from you. I think Ukraine is on the front line. Um, it's on the front line of a lot of different battlefields. Um, one battlefield we know is the military battlefield where the Russians have invaded Ukraine. Um, uh, another is on the cyber battlefield where the Russians have attacked Ukrainian infrastructure um, uh, and hacked it and, and disrupted it. Um, the, Rus the, the Ukrainians are on the front line of election interference. The Russians have uh, interfered in the elections that Michael, you and I both observed. Correct. Um, uh, and it doesn't stop at the front line. That's the issue. Uh, the Russian aggression against Ukraine is just kind of the front line of the Russian aggression against Europe. And then eventually the Russian against uh, aggression against North America, the Canadians and the Americans. Um, and so Ukraine is on the front line uh, uh, of, of that hostility, of that aggression. Um, and that's why we should support Ukraine. That's why we want Ukraine to succeed. The Ukrainians are not asking for uh, military uh, support uh, or military troops. Uh, mm -hmm. The Ukrainians just, the Ukrainians want to be a normal European country. They just want to be able to go about their business and, and trade and, and raise their kids and, and go to school and get health care and, and buy things and sell things and be a normal European country. Um, and so they don't, have, they don't have great demands, but they are the front line and we should mm -hmm. support them in their resistance to the, the Russian aggression. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Ambassador, you asked for a question about Crimea? Well, let me try this one on you. Um, you know, as time goes on, uh, and I'm not the first one to say this, I see Russia and China start to play out of similar playbooks. And what we saw, for example, with uh, Hong Kong and Macau is the Chinese moved very quickly in recent years to what we call hardwire both territories to the mainland, bridges, rapid transit. Uh, the Chinese have, against opposition in Hong Kong, placed um, their own people, immigration uh, customs officer on Hong Kong territory, and now they're placing uh, security personnel there, again, which is against the basic law. In Crimea, we saw Putin move quite quickly to hardwire that, uh, that territory with that long bridge and through other means. My question would be, um, can we ever envisage today, given this and other developments, that Crimea is returned to Ukraine? Yes. Um, I, I, I do believe we can envision that day. Um, it, it, it's not going to be tomorrow. Uh, it's not going to be next year. It's going to be 
a harder, uh, a harder battle, a long, a longer term battle, not a military battle, uh, but it's going to be a, a long struggle. Um, and in the end, uh, people living, Ukrainians living in Crimea uh, are going to see that Ukraine as a European country uh, connected to Europe, being even a, Europe, uh, a member of the European Union, maybe being a member of NATO, um, you, Ukrainians living in Crimea, Crimeans are going to see that successful Ukraine. And then they're going to look at Russia um, and they're going to see a corrupt autocracy. And, and they're going to have the opportunity to choose again. Um, and so I do believe that uh, Ukraine will, uh, will again become uh, part of, uh, it, it is part of Ukraine right now, and it'll be, it will be in fact um, uh, uh, another province, another oblast um, uh, of Ukraine. It may take time. I mean, it will mm -hmm. clearly take time. And we remember um, that the Soviet annexation of the Baltic states of uh, Lithuania, Latvia, and mm -hmm. Estonia, we remember that that Soviet annexation um, was never recognized, uh, certainly by the United States, I think not recognized by, by Canada either um, as being legitimate. And all through the Cold War, um, we maintained um, that the Baltic states were not part of the Soviet Union and were uh, and would it would become uh, independent, and we never recognized uh, uh, that mm -hmm. annexation. And the mm -hmm. same thing should happen has happened uh, for Crimea. So uh, Secretary Pompeo two years ago um, issued uh, a similar statement to what uh, uh, the United States Secretary of State uh, issued back in the back in World War II. That is, we'll never recognize the. Soviet annexation of the Baltics mm -hmm. and will never recognize the Russian annexation of Crimea. And we know that the Baltics eventually became free and they are members right. of the EU and they are members of NATO. And doing very well economically. And doing very well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Ambassador, as we mentioned at the top, you're now with the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is a nonpartisan um, institute funded by Congress and it's dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible and practical and essential. It seems to me, and again, I'm not the first one to say this, that conflicts are lasting longer and are more lethal, not least of which is the conflict in Eastern Ukraine, which has lasted more than six years, claimed 14,000 lives, displaced millions, caused billions of dollars worth of damage. What are your thoughts about conflicts? I think we're looking at around 10 or 12 right now that are just almost intractable, lasting, lasting a long time, and we don't see any end in sight. You're right. Um, and it's hard to maintain um, uh, the hope that these conflicts will end. Um, but we need to work toward that. We need mm -hmm. to understand the conflicts. Uh, we need to look for ways to resolve the conflicts. Um, we at the Institute of Peace, obviously, by you can tell by our name, we look for nonviolent ways to resolve mm -hmm. conflicts. I mean, there are ways to resolve conflicts, and we have the Pentagon to do to do it one way, and we're looking for other ways uh, to to resolve the conflicts. And it has to do with uh, with understanding the root causes of conflict, um, and it also has to do with negotiations and mediation and dialogue. Um, 
um, this is not to say compromise, because as the as the conflict in uh, in Donbas shows us um, that the that the per, that the reason for that and the driving force of that conflict is Mr. Putin, and so it's not a compromise uh, we're talking about, we're, but we're talking about a way to find a a an off ramp um, for President Putin to leave. Donbas and to uh, to allow the Ukrainians to resume take back sovereignty and control of the border. So it's looking it's looking for mechanisms, nonviolent mechanisms, um, to resolve conflict. And you're right, um, many are intractable and have gone on a long time. Um, we also deal um, with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that's gone on a long time as well. Um, mm -hmm. um, but we don't give up. Uh, we look for ways. Uh, look for ways that we can uh, move move it forward. At some time, uh, at some point, um, there will be opportunities in all of these conflicts. I'm convinced um, for us to make some progress, and so we we'll, we want to be looking for it at that time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you mentioned Putin there. A quick anecdote here for you. I remember I was standing on the balcony once of the Ukraina Hotel in Kiev. Uh, this was probably 2014, 2015, and uh, one of your predecessors, who I have a lot of respect for, Jeff Pyatt, was asked, I think it was by Anderson Cooper, what will it take to uh, end the conflict in Eastern Ukraine? And he had a really kind of pithy answer. He said, oh, well, that's easy. All, uh, all that has to happen is for President Putin to pick up the phone and say enough is enough, stop the conflict, and they're gone. <laughs> so. And, and Ambassador Pyatt was exactly right. That's, exactly, yeah. that's, that's yeah. what it'll take. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not, I don't think it's Pollyannish to think that that could happen. I think that uh, uh, my own view um, is that um, a lot of people in Moscow think that Donbass is a loser for Russia uh, from a lot of different, a lot of different respects. Mm -hmm. And uh, as, that, as that conclusion dawns on people, including Mr. Putin, um, I think there may be a way that he'll look to find his way out. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, Ambassador, so many of us have become used to the United States being kind of the world mediator, world policeman, if you will. And I wanted to ask you, how much has the U.S. power and reputation been hurt, hurt on the world stage over the past three and a half years, let's say? You know, there's that old saying that it takes generations for a country to build up its reputation and that influence... Um, can be destroyed in a very short period of time. Again, in this case, three and a half years. So does this bother you? And will it take time for the US to reassume its role under, say, a new administration? It'll take time. But I, I think if there is a new administration um, in January, um, I think there could well be um, an eagerness on the part of the new administration, but even on the part of our friends and allies. And I would be interested in the Canadian uh, response mm -hmm. and interested in the Europe, other European response. But I think there is a, a hunger uh, for a more cooperative, uh, constructive uh, uh, partnership um, with the United States um, and that Canadians and Americans working together can do much better than either doing it alone. And similarly with our European allies. So I think, I think it can be uh, recovered um, and, and, it, and it should be. Okay, yeah, and um, I agree with you. And uh, you know, 
you mentioned Canada. I mean, I, I, I think I speak on a lot of people here when I say that we feel very alone right now. Uh, as you know, we're in a tough struggle with China right now to uh, release uh, the two Michaels, as they're known, who've been contained for 550 days. And uh, the United States promised to um, go to bat, so to speak, for them. Doesn't appear it has uh, very strongly as we would have expected. So that's put us in a tough spot. But I think what we're seeing happening is Canada is being wise about this. And um, we're, you know, forging new alliances, uh, even with, you know, far away Australia with more tighter alliances with Europe with people we feel a commonality with. So very interesting what's going on on the sidelines too. Um, Ambassador, um, you know, I, you can tell me whether this is um, okay for you to, to answer, but I realize you've been reluctant to criticize Secretary Pompeo for a perceived lack of leadership and re refusal to meaningfully support and defend the people at the State Department. Um, and I'm wondering as a career diplomat, and I know it's important for you to choose your words very carefully, but you know, given the profound moment that we're in and given the circumstances, would you be a bit more specific in your judgment here or commentary on, on Pompeo? We know, and I think you've said this, he's in a tough spot, uh, but so is everyone else in the administration. But, you know, like you, he's taken an oath to put the interests of the U.S. first. So um, what should we expect with him? Are his allegiances in the place they should be? I think any Secretary of State um, uh, is the is the face and the force and the, um, uh, the the appearance and the spirit of the United States abroad, um, uh, and so all secretaries of state um, mm -hmm. have taken that seriously um, and have moved and acted and and decided and pushed for a, a strong moral um uh, u.s foreign policy uh that is realistic and that is based on on national interests uh, but those national interests um extend to allies uh, because they are in our interest but also because we care about the alliances uh, uh succeeding so i think uh secretary pompeo um understands that um and uh i think he should pursue those national those u.s national interests which are, which are broad um, and include the alliances that have made this, this country great and that uh, will have, have the ability, as I say, to move that forward no matter who is uh, in the White House uh, next year. Okay, and quickly, with so many career diplomats either fired or resigned, and I, as you have great admiration for Masha Yovanovitch, we've met in Ukraine many times, but um, will it take a while for the U.S. to regain this brain power, those connections built up over the decades, the institutional memory. Will that take a long time to come back? Well, a lot of those people haven't gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of, you know, Masha is, uh, uh, she's available. Uh, I don't know if she, if she would say she's available, but, I, but <laughs> she has the, the leadership um, and the experience and the dedication, and she's just an example Michael, of the kinds of people who are out there, and there are, and there are those in the government, in the State Department, in mm -hmm. embassies, um, that that are able and willing um, and eager uh, to, to to step up 
Um, and like I say, there are, so those, those internal are ready to step up and those that have left um, are willing to step back in. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it is definitely doable. Okay. And only had maybe a couple of questions left, if I, if I may. Um, you know, uh, we talked about a little bit about the U.S. stepping back or abdicating its role of, the, let's say, the world's policeman. And uh, what I've been seeing, too, and many others, is China kind of filling a void. Um, they've even been making overtures to Ukraine, but really projecting not only their uh, soft power, but writing a lot of checks, uh, putting a lot of favorable loans out there to developing countries. Uh, we saw just recently, um, in for CNN Opinion, I wrote that uh, uh, Xi Jinping seems to have uh, done quite a, um, not a takeover, but uh, put quite a bit of influence into the WHO as the U.S. is stepping back. Does that worry you that um, these may also be irreversible kind of trends that China and perhaps even Russia are filling roles that uh, are a result of this void? Here again, um, if countries um, look at the at models um, and they look at the Chinese model, they look at the Russian model, and they look at the Canadian model, they look at American model, they look at the German model, they look at the British model. When they look at at what they are and what they want to be, um, uh, I think I think the models of uh, of, of market democracies. Um, um, are more attractive than the autocracies of China and, and Russia and, and others. Um, uh, and I think that we're talking about over time now um, uh, that certainly um, the economic incentives and the checks that you mentioned, Michael, that the Chinese are writing, they come with strings. Um, they yeah. say they don't come with strings, but they come with strengths. Um, um, and we see those, um, and we see the the, uh, the, the bad results of uh, of that dependence uh, or those those connections. Um, and when they see what the um, what the uh, democracy um, and and market and and individual rights um, of of the United States and Canada and the UK and Germany and and, and Australia. We, we see that those are the those are the strengths, um, and those are the the values and the principles uh, that I, I I genuinely believe um, appeal to people around the world, and I think mm -hmm. they will prevail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I think you're bang on, Ambassador. And I think it was Steve Sang Sang from SOAS in London said the other day that he can't even <laughs> envision the day where uh, I mean, it's he said it's easy to write checks, but can you imagine? China mediating in uh, Iraq, Iran, uh, or, or sorry, in Afghanistan, um, in Yemen. As we said at the beginning, you're Vice President, Strategic Stability and Security at the United States Institute for Peace. What does your day-to-day -day job involve there? So we uh, uh, are involved, the Institute of Peace um, has offices um, uh, in a lot of places, a lot of conflict places around the world. Uh, we have uh, a large office, our largest office actually is in Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, I served there when I was in the State Department and now and the Institute of Peace has been there since I was there in the State Department. We've got, uh, we've got work going on in Kabul, uh, both at the kind of grassroots level, but also trying to help um, the United States and Taliban 
um, to come to some kind of agreement to end that war. Um, similarly, we've done a lot of work uh, in Baghdad, um, in Iraq. Uh, we have an office in Baghdad, we have an office in Erbil. We have uh, offices uh, in Nigeria, in uh, Tunisia, uh, not where there's a conflict, but where we can work um, in Libya. Um, on that conflict. And so uh, this is a, the answer to your question, Michael, is that we are, yes, headquartered in Washington, D.C., right across the street from the State Department, work very closely with the State Department on these issues, on these conflict issues. Um, uh, but our, our uh, unique, not unique, our unusual ability to be on the ground um, um, in these conflict zones gives us the ability to look for solutions. As I say, the non-military uh, non solutions, non-violent solutions to, how, to solving these conflicts where we are, where we are living and where we are working. Uh, mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that we do, we think about in Washington, but we actually do work um, in, in these conflict zones. So that, that's, that's what the Institute of Peace does. Okay, and um, from your approach there at the Institute of Peace, um, you know, as this podcast kind of started when COVID-19 was taking hold, and it's been very interesting to see what's been happening, ge happening geopolitically. And what I've been observing in, anyway is that a lot of so-called strongmen, take Hungary, for example, uh, there's a number of other countries, Brazil, uh, seem to be using the cover of COVID-19 to sort of level the playing field, curtailing civil liberties, postpone of a, a postponement of elections, um, unreasonable curfews. Uh, yesterday on PBS, the NewsHour, Stephen Morrison from CSIS regarded to President Bolsonaro in Brazil as wretched national leadership. What's playing out there? Um, does that uh, bother you that these strongmen seem to be either manipulating the crisis or using it to their own advantage? Yeah, that's of course, you're exactly right, Michael. That, that is, that is a, a big problem. But um, these strongmen do not seem to be winning against the, the virus. Um, uh, they, can, they can deny it and they can try to take advantage of it, uh, but it, it, the virus um, is having devastating effect on, on uh, strongmen um, who uh, who resisted, um, who are not taking the steps that need to be taken in order to, to fight this. So um, we'll see um, uh, which which countries um, solve this problem. Um, uh, and I will say that our country, my country, the United States, is not not doing a great job uh, right now. Um, and, and uh, we, are, we seem to be relaxing um, as the as the virus uh, seems to be coming back um, in places, certainly in places around around this country, my country. Um, so uh, we will see how the the various countries. Germany did pretty well. South Korea did pretty well. Um, New Zealand did pretty well. Um, uh, um, there are others that have not done well. So, uh, but I think that the, that the strongmen, um, uh, in particular, when they try to resist and and uh, avoid taking the the, the steps, uh, will pay the price. Okay. And just to wrap up, Ambassador, um, as you know, we've uh, I can see the U.S. border from where I am right now. I live in a border town, and our border has been closed for about three months now with the United States. Uh, some breaking news here is the EU is prepared to bar American travelers when it reopens borders on July 1 
because the U.S. has not controlled the virus, according to draft list. Your reaction? So nations do what they have to do. Uh, nations make decisions um, for their, their, the benefit of their citizens. Um, and uh, if nations see that a, another nation, travelers, uh, um, is not taking the steps to control the virus, is not being careful about who has it, who's tested, and um, who is quarantined, um, then their responsibilities are to, their, to their, the health of their people. Mm -hmm. um, so I would hope that, that the United States would be able to convince ourselves in the first instance and others in the second instance that we are taking the right measures. And so that uh, uh, as we take the right measures and as we get control of this virus uh, um, through measures um, while we're waiting for treatments and vaccine, um, that, that the borders will be reopened. Okay. And finally, to thank you, Ambassador, and if the listeners of Global Impact ever want to know more about William Taylor, will we be looking forward at some time in the future to a book, perhaps? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, uh, at least there's no, no plans right now. Um, uh, I'm uh, uh, fully employed and, uh, and having a great time at the Institute of Peace, and, uh, and I hope that we can make some progress on all these conflicts, including the ones in Ukraine, uh, and that's where I'll be devoting my time. Okay, thank you. I, I'm sure I speak on behalf of everyone when we uh, give our heartfelt thanks to you and we salute your service, Ambassador, and really heartfelt thanks for coming on to Global uh, Impact. It's a fascinating conversation with you. Michael, thank you very much for having me. Remember, there are several ways you can support Global Impact, which, after all, is a listener-supported podcast. You can give it a five-star rating on Apple or any other quality platform where you receive your podcasts. You can subscribe, and you can help support the program financially by clicking on the Donate tab. We also wanted to thank Squarespace, the website building people, for their indirect support of Global Impact. Well, this brings us to the end of another episode of Global Impact. My heartfelt thanks to you for listening. And as I always like to remind you, uh, do take a moment um, out of your week to reach out and touch somebody. It's so easy right now because of technology to get a hold of someone either down the block or around the world. Maybe they're in quarantine or maybe they're stuck in another country or someone elderly who can't uh, leave uh, the building they're in. So it doesn't take much effort to make a huge difference in someone's day. I'm Michael Bosicu, your host, and until we meet again, this was Global Impact. Thank you for listening.